Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast exploring all areas of the justice system. With me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. This week, I speak to Charlie Taylor, Chief Inspector of Her Majesty's Prisons. Independent from government, the inspectorate reports directly to the Secretary of State for Justice on the conditions inside prisons and other places of detention, and on the treatment of those inside them. In this episode, Charlie explains more about what his role entails, and we discuss the challenges and issues raised in his recently published annual report. My name's Charlie Taylor. I'm Chief Inspector of Prisons. Charlie, how on earth did you come into this role and what, what did you do sort of in the, the years before? Well, I've been very lucky. I've had a very interesting career, right? I began as a primary school teacher and then started to develop a specialism in children's behaviour and a real interest in why children got into trouble. I then worked in secondary schools and then for local authorities on various programmes improving children's behaviour or aiming to improve children's behaviour. And then I was lucky enough to become head teacher of a special school for children with behaviour problems in at Hillingdon in West London. And from there, I went to the the Department for Education as an expert advisor on behaviour. I then, in 2015, went to the Ministry of Justice to do a review for Michael Gove into the youth justice system. So it was a a change to a different world, but but many of the the children in prison had very similar backgrounds to the sorts of children who were at my school as well. And then from there, I was chair of the Youth Justice Board. And then, very fortunately, I've got my current job. Okay. And the Youth Justice Board, there was sort of great successes, wasn't there, in the sense that the number of children in prison was reduced by quite a yeah, large it's been, number. Yeah, it's been a really remarkable decline, actually. Um, the high point, I think, for children in custody was around uh, 2000, uh, around the turn of the century, when there were about 3,500 children locked up. There are around three or 400 at the moment. So... Uh, the numbers dropped enormously mm. in the last... And even when I was at the Youth Justice Board, there were 1,200 children locked up. And we assumed that that was the bedrock. But actually, since then, even fewer are being locked up. And, and what it does mean is the children who are in custody now, a large proportion of them are, um, are in for, for very serious offences, yeah. for, for murder, manslaughter, uh, those sorts of offences. But interestingly, what we're still seeing is quite large numbers of children going being remanded to custody for quite short periods of time. So actually where there's no provision in the local authority and, and therefore the child goes to custody and then provision's found. But of course, what that can't undo is is the damage that's done by taking a child away from home and putting them into a prison-type environment for two or three weeks. Exactly, because on the one hand, that's positive, isn't it, that the numbers went down. But actually, mm. as we'll come on to when we start talking about your annual report, the levels of safety and the levels of violence actually are something not to be um, too positive Indeed. about. Indeed. It's it's not a good picture, is it, of the, those who are left? Can you give me a sort of potted history of the role of the chief inspector and why was it created? Why do we need this body that you preside over? Well, prison inspection has been something that, that, that's that been of interest uh, for a long time, ever since prisons came into to existence. And famously, Elizabeth Fry independently spent a lot of time going into prisons. And, and you see hers and John Howard's effigies uh, on, on either side of the gatehouse at, at Wormwood Scrubs. But this particular role was created in 1982 uh, with the idea that uh, there was to be an independent inspectorate of prisons who, who although funded by the government, uh, was not at the whim of the government, was able to publish reports, uh, go into prisons freely, anywhere within the custodial estate freely, and publish reports about what was going on within custody. 
And I think my role, I think I'm the seventh chief inspector of prisons. And what I've been is incredibly lucky because of the work that my predecessors have done. So people like David Ramsbottom, people like Nick Hardwick, people like Anne Owers uh, are, have resolutely defended the independence of the inspectorate, have, have prevented any sort of political intervention in any of the work that we do. And what it means, actually, is that it really feels like an independent body. I, I, I've been imposed for coming up for two years, and I've had no push from the Ministry of Justice, from ministers, to try and get me to put anything in a report. And if they tried, I wouldn't anyway. OK. And that independence is so important because it allows you to do what so much better? It allows us to, to, to comment and hold a mirror up to places of custody without fear or favour, without worrying that if we say something that's uncomfortable, uh, that we might lose our jobs or that we might get in trouble for it. So that's the real strength of an independent inspectorate. OK. And then you are the chief inspector. Mm-hmm. So can you give me an indication of what um, the organisation looks like sort of below you and what teams you have and how it's organised? Yes. So I'm chief inspector, I've got a deputy, and then we've got a number of teams with specialism. So we've got a team that specialises uh, in youth, We've got a team that specialises in women. We've got a team that specialises in immigration detention. And then we have our general teams as well. But actually all our teams, whatever they specialise in, spend most of their time inspecting male prisons because that's the vast majority of people who are locked up in this country. Okay, and for those who are interested, um, those listening, Sandra Fieldhouse heads up the women's inspectors team, doesn't she? The brilliant for the Sandra female estate. She does indeed. Yeah. She so if anyone's indeed. interested in that, they can go back. And also, we've had Peter Clark, your predecessor, on on the podcast too. So your annual report is out April twenty one to March twenty two. So could you give me a sort of snapshot of? that year because we were sort of COVID, not COVID. You might argue that COVID is still here and it hasn't gone away. So could you give me a sort of snapshot of the report and your feelings on it? And then we'll dig into it in a, in a bit more detail. Absolutely. And it's interesting, we, we've started sort of measuring time in, in COVID and COVID outbreaks, haven't yeah. we? And that's what it feels like uh, with this report as well. So uh, we began the reporting era with things beginning to look a bit better uh, in, in the estate, things beginning to open up a sense that actually um, we were coming to the end of COVID. And then, of course, um, the Omicron variant came along and then prisons began to shut down again and, and, and all reverted to a state of, of not very much happening. So that was really the course of the year in terms of the pandemic. The prison service, um, and, and we congratulated them in our last year's report uh, for the work they did, and, and particularly for governors and officers and people who work in prisons, to keep prisoners safe. And prisoners really appreciated that particularly early on where prisoners were as frightened as the rest of us uh, about COVID. We didn't understand what the virus was. They put prisons into lockdown quite quickly. And we haven't had anything like the seriousness of outbreaks in prison that we might have had elsewhere. But since then, the frustration, um, which you'll see within this report and, and which I reported on last year as well, has been the pace at which prisons began to open up. So what we're finding this year and what we found last year is that people are spending an awful lot of time locked up behind their cell door. 22 hours a day is not at all unusual. And, and just to remind listeners what that means, it's 22 hours a day in a cell that might be about 12 foot by 6 foot with a bunk bed with you and another prisoner who you may or may not get on with, uh, with uh, some very limited and sketchy furniture and, of course, a toilet in the corner, which is probably unscreened and uh, if you're lucky, a sink that works and doesn't get blocked. So people have been put in, in under enormous pressure within prisons over the course of time, over the course of the last two years. And in some ways, it's miraculous that, that um, lots of prisoners have come through it at all, though. I think we don't yet know what, what the effects of the pandemic will be on people who've been in prison. And I really worry about, about how that will play out in the future. I've just turned to page 28 of your report and I think it's worth sort of reading this out because you've got some sort of good quotes from prisoners themselves. And this reads, Prisoners repeatedly told us of being locked up for more than 23 hours a day in the weeks leading to the inspection. Some had as little as 45 minutes a day out of their cell. The regime was inadequate and it was almost impossible for prisoners to get a shower. 
use the electronic kiosks and manage their day-to-day needs in the very limited time unlocked. And that wasn't untypical at all. So, so prisoners, uh, they have to get through their, their, the daily tasks they have to do. So they have to do things like order food, get stuff from the kiosk, um, be able to make a phone call, be able to have a shower, be able to spend some time outside. And what we were finding in the height of the pandemic and during lockdowns was actually prisoners were having to choose between, am I going to go outside today or am I going to have a shower today? Am I going to make sure my, I've ordered the food I need for, them for, 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 for the next week or am I going to phone my family? And, and that was an enormous pressure for prisoners where they were caught in a very difficult position for, for months and months on end. COVID was a very difficult time. People had to do what they had to do. But from reading your report, it seems that quite a lot of prisons are being rather slow to get back to how things were. You know, we we could argue that's to do with the staffing crisis that we'll sort of move on to in a minute as well. But what would you say about what we are actually doing and presiding over, which is actually having a hugely negative consequence on uh, absolutely. the behaviours of the I mean, prisoners? I think, I think you, you, you've, you've got to weigh up the things that have happened in prison. So, so you've had... Long periods of time, loss of visits. You've had um, prisoners not being able to get to education. They've not been able to get to work. They've not been able to get into workshops. They've not been able to get onto rehabilitation programmes. They sometimes haven't been able to get a move or a recategorization move to a lower security prison, for example, to an open prison. Uh, and they've spent enormous amounts of time locked in their cells. And, and I think I have a concern, as do people who work in prisons, that that this can have quite a profound effect on on the journey of some of these prisoners uh, and what's going to happen to them when they come out from custody at the end of this. Because we're now seeing a generation of prisoners who, who spent the last two years virtually entirely locked in their cell for long periods of time. And, and um, to me, that's enormously concerning. So... This obviously sort of leads into the staffing crisis. Can you paint a picture of where we are today in July 22, off the back of a little bit of the potted history of, you know, years ago, 40% of the frontline staff were taken out. Um, Everyone had advised that that was an incredibly bad idea. It happened. A big re-recruitment drive um, went on to get people back into the service. And Now we have some prisons who are reporting that over 80% of their staff are under the age of, what, 24? Indeed, indeed. It's become a a serious situation. I mean, if I take you quickly over the the 21st century, what what we saw was were were big reductions in in prison officers from about uh, 2012, 13. And then from 2015 onwards, there was a voluntary exit scheme where lots of really experienced staff took early retirement. And that, even more than reducing the numbers, seemed to have the big effect. So these were experienced staff who knew their way around a prison, who understood prisoners, who knew what a good regime was like, knew what prisoners needed, knew how to spot signs of trouble early and deal with them. That was also combined with, with the arrival on the scene of, of psychoactive substances like spice and uh, some serious organised crime gangs who became quite sophisticated at getting these sorts of drugs into prison. It was a very lucrative market. Lots of money was and still is being made uh, from these gangs. And the combination of a loss of experienced staff and the ingress of these sorts of substances led to big increases of violence between 2015 and uh, 2019. It had begun to come down a little bit at the beginning of the pandemic, and that was partly because prison officer numbers had begun to go up again. But what we're seeing now is as a result of what has been up until recently an economy where um, it's been hard to to find people, uh, particularly in some bits of the country, who want to come and work as a prison officer because there's lots of competition elsewhere. So so, so what we're finding, particularly in jails like um, in jails like Woodhill, uh, in, in Oak Hill, uh, near Milton Keynes, in jails up that M1 corridor like Onley, um, and, and, and to the West, like uh, Aylesbury, a real issue with just being able to hang on to uh, re- recruit and also to retain prison officers. But the starting salary is... Well, it, it varies on which bit of the country you're in. Right. So, so for, it's the, very low. for the lower grades, it'll be in the early 20,000s. If you're, if you're further up, if you're coming in at a band three officer, it'll be higher. Yeah. Um, and then obviously, uh, depending where you are in the country as well. So there are different uplifts for different bits of the country. And from officers that I've spoken to, as I understand it, a lot of people are sort of thinking, well, prisons are incredibly violent at the minute. You know, there's the backlash of what has happened over COVID and the consequences of all those lockups. Mm. 
And a lot of people actually kind of going, well, do you know what? If the police are recruiting so many, yeah. I think it might be better if I sort of head in that direction and maybe try and get a job with the police. Yeah, and we've seen, uh, you know, I've talked to lots of officers who, who are going off to join the police. I've talked to officers who are going to join Border Force. I've talked to officers who are going to join Rail Track, uh, officers who are going to work on HS2. So there are lots of areas in which um, there are fairly similar salaries where, where people who are working as prison officers feel that it's not for them and, and that they may do better elsewhere. And I think there's a real challenge for the prison service with this, which is to find ways to keep and attract people who are really good and competent. We see loads of great people arriving in prisons, really enthusiastic, really up for it, uh, very keen to do well. But they're also quite young, and I think they probably need a bit more help and support than perhaps they might have done in the past. In the old days, a lot of people who came into to prison officer roles were people who'd been in the services, people in their late 20s, who had been around a bit, knew a bit about the world, were used to working in an institution. And what we're seeing from the younger cohort coming in is that um, they perhaps haven't had some of those life experiences and therefore they need a bit more help. One of the other added elements, I think, is the fact that a lot of these new recruits have come in during lockdown, right? So what we hear um, is the fact that some of these officers have never known unlock. So you might be on a wing in Parkhurst and you've never known 100 men to come out onto the wing. Suddenly they all get unlocked and that's absolutely terrifying. And the training, which in my personal view is inadequate and too short, a lot of that training happens on the job in inverted commas. But then if that training on the job is actually everyone locked behind their door, well, that's no training. Indeed. I mean, it, it's amazing how you can walk around a prisoner quite easily up and down a wing and not see a prisoner at all. Um uh, because because they are behind their doors for such long periods of time. And prisons, when prisoners are unlocked, are noisy. And there's um, and what good and experienced officers need to be able to do is to spot the difference between uh, and, and spot the signs of trouble beginning to brew so they can step in early, deal with those sorts of things. But, but, but I worry a little bit that, that we're seeing the fact that there are lots of new inexperienced officers being a reason for why things haven't opened up. Because we recently went down to uh, Earlstoke Jail in um, in Wiltshire, and this is outside the reporting period for our annual report, but, but it was about a month or so ago. And actually, they've got loads of really inexperienced officers in there, and that's a difficult prison to run and to work in, and we've been very critical of reports uh, on Earlstoke in the past. But the governor there was adamant that he was going to get things up and running. He's got people out of their cells. He's got people into work. He's got people back into education. And actually, there's been a slight uplift in violence, but there hasn't been a huge uplift in violence. And there's a jail which has also got a number of very inexperienced officers too. So um, I think it shows that it can be done with the right level of determination and support. And um, But I think where it gets more difficult is in prisons like Wood Hill, where you've got very inexperienced officers by being supervised by only slightly less inexperienced officers. And I think that is a real challenge. And how long can that go on for? Because we hear all the time, you know, I've worked in prisons now for about 23 years and you hear all the time, we're at breaking point, we're at mm. crisis point. And, you know, that was just often banded around before COVID and before this particular staffing crisis. Yeah. You know, how bad does it need to get before actually some intervention needs to come in somewhere? Indeed. I mean, it, it, it's a very difficult uh, thing for... I, and I do have some sympathy and understanding with the prison service and also with ministers here, because ultimately, uh, if you stand on an electoral platform and you say we're going to pay nurses more or we're going to pay prison officers more, I think the general public would rather that we paid nurses more. If you said we were going to spend more money funding prisons than hospitals or we were going to take money away from hospital funding and spending it on prisons again i'm not sure the public would be particularly supportive of that no i completely agree but why on earth should we have to choose between what's more important justice health when actually you know when justice all goes wrong and all these sort of things happening in the prisons well where do they go when they get ill well, they it, end it, up going out to hospital <laughs> indeed and and you know I, I, you would argue that money well spent in prisons is money saved from from other services uh, with, without any doubt. But but uh, I suppose the challenge uh, way above my pay grade for ministers is about making decisions uh, about how to allocate money to different things. And, and I think uh, convincing the public that it's worth spending more money on prisons is a challenge. And, and I think if you stood on a... If, 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 if one of the um, candidates in the, in the Tory election leadership campaign, which is, which is just going on, were to stand on a platform of we're going to spend much more money on prisons... Uh, I'm not sure they'd necessarily get the votes to, to get them over the line. So uh, 
there are lots of people who believe in having better prisons, but I think it's a stretch to get people sometimes to think that they need to invest the right amount of money in them. I mean, uh, the, the argument that I, I, I make always, though, is that, look, it costs £45,000 to keep someone locked in prison for a year. That seems to be an awful lot of money. Are we getting value for money having people locked behind their doors for 22 hours a day? And also, what do we want these people to be like when they come out? Do we want them to, to come out and to uh, continue to cause trouble in their neighbourhoods, to uh, become separated from their families and from their kids? Do we want them uh, being unemployed or do we want them working hard, taking care of their families, paying taxes, uh, feeling like they're a, um, a proper member, a functioning member of society? And I think if we want the latter, which I'm sure everybody does, then we need to make sure that our prisons are effective. And what about flipping on its head? So, you know, I agree, you sort of lose the battle. It would be an un unintelligent way for a minister to articulate themselves to say we're going to invest in prisons. I mean, there's obviously different ways they could they could word it. So when, I, when I'm losing the battle in a, in a debate with people about this subject, I always say, you know, prisons are a workplace. What about talking about the staff and the violence they have to put up with, the conditions they have to put up with? In your report, you talk about one of the most modern institutions being the most filthy. Mm. There is no excuse for that. And we went round the houses on that sort of years ago with the Liverpool prison mm. and the governor was ousted. Um, another governor <clears> came <throat> in and she just got it cleared up. Mm. Um, I'm sure it was more difficult than that. But prisons are workplaces, so where does employment law come into it? I've always wondered whether employment law just gets to the door of a prison and then that's it. It's a, it's it doesn't cross that door. It's a really good point. And, and, and you're absolutely right. Um, there are some absolutely brilliant heroic prison officers who go to work every day and have done an amazing job. And these are unsung heroes of, of the pandemic as well, because uh, you know, they haven't always had the praise and, 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 the, um, and, and the, the recognition that the other essential workers have had. But they've carried on turning up every day through the pandemic. They've been worried about what will happen to them. They've been worried about, about the effect that it may have on their family and, and the virus. And sadly, some of those have died in service as well from, from COVID. So um, it, you're, you're absolutely right that, that creating an environment that's safe for, for prisoners is also creating an environment that's safe for the people who work there. Mm, a decent workplace. Indeed. You sort of think, actually, Great Britain 2022, should you know, should that not just be a given? So I sort of wonder why that's not enough to make the government move on anything substantial. Indeed. and um, I know you're well, not necessarily meant to have all the answers to my well, questions. Well, let's, let, let's and you're watch meant the, to be independent. Well, so. let's, let's watch this space. I, I think the prioritisation of prisons is, is something that is worth doing and it's investment that's worth making because people who come out from prison and they haven't had the right type of rehabilitation, people who haven't been trained to work, can go out and cause a whole load of trouble. I mean, you think of those three or 400 children who are currently locked up uh, in our YOIs uh, and secure training centres around the country. Uh, those people potentially can come out, uh, come out as adults, potentially uh, cause a huge amount of damage in their environments uh, to their local communities, to friends and families people who love them, or they can come out and, and make a real difference to the society they live in and go on and have successful and, and happy lives. And uh, it's really worth thinking about prisons as a long-term investment in some people for whatever reason have, have got themselves into trouble and need the help in order to stay on the straight and narrow. Exactly, because at the end of the day, it's taxpayers' money that pays for all of this to go on. So surely one would, because you talked about it being £45,000 a year for mm. an adult male, I yeah. think, that number. Mm. When it comes to children in prison, am I right in thinking it's over £100,000? Yeah, more. I mean, if, if, you, if you looked at it per, if you divided the money spent on children by the amount of children in the system, and I know the numbers are low at the moment, it's probably nearest £200,000 a, a place spent on children who are locked up. Exactly. And then you have a chapter in your report on children in prison. And I have to say it makes for really alarming and very depressing reading, um, bar the positivity coming out of Park Prison, which maybe mm. we'll talk about because we don't want to be entirely negative <laughs> during this podcast. But these are children who've been failed by adults. Rainsbrook had two urgent notification requirements in one year. Mm. Am I right in saying that had to be disbanded? There was no provision for the girls. There were no placements for the girls, a very small number of girls because most of them were boys. Being held in places that, you know, quite frankly, are too violent, too dangerous. And these 
it's it's an appalling indictment on mm. us as a country. Mm. And it makes me so cross that to hide behind, I'm not saying you're hiding behind it, but the sort of ministers saying they're not going to win votes through it. I mm. mean, it just... I, I agree. I, I agree completely. <laughs> the words and, escape me. No, I, I agree. And, and, and uh, I went around Rainsbrook when um, we were inspecting it and... It didn't feel safe. It, it felt like, a, um, you know, and I'm used to being in prisons. I'm used to being in schools and, and those sorts of environment. Rainsbrook felt pretty unsafe to me. And it was definitely an environment that, that felt very uneasy. So it was the right thing to do in the end to remove children from that establishment. We'd seen for some time that, that two inspections in a row where they really weren't able to deliver what they were supposed to deliver. But what we ended up with was the issue of, of girls who couldn't be placed or being turned down for places in secure children's homes. It was five girls, according to your report. That's yeah. right. And, and, and I think one of them was placed in a secure children's home, and I think the other three uh, had to be moved to uh, new provision, which was created very quickly. And actually, credit to Weatherby YOI, because they, they stepped up very quickly, and, and they did embrace this, and they, they've actually done a good job in the YOI. And talking to the girls up there, when we inspected, um, they, they were quite positive of their experience. But bear in mind, their experience before had been Rainsbrook, so... Um, uh, you know, their expectations may not have been very high. But nevertheless, the idea that you're going to, at speed, have to move a lot of girls into, in effect, what's a boy's prison, doesn't feel like an ideal way of uh, of operating. No. And it also begs the question, if over £100,000 a year is being spent on these children, what on earth is that money being spent on? Because it's certainly not the training of staff, because I think we're asking our staff to do an impossible task. Yeah. If these places aren't safe, they're violent, they're having to be disbanded, what on earth is that money being spent on? Yeah, indeed. I mean, we're still seeing in, in, the, in the two YOYs we inspected in the report, we saw, we saw children being locked up for 18 hours a day, that sort of thing. So still huge amounts of time being spent behind their door. Education providers not returning to the jail, taking a long time to get those sorts of services up and running. And these are kids who should be in school. They should be in school every day and they should be in school for a good long period of time. But also these, are, these by and large, are energetic young men who, who are locked up. Um, they need to be out and about. They need to be taking exercise. They need to be going to bed tired in the evening. And you know, any of your listeners who, who have teenage boys and all girls know that, that exercise is a really important part of their development. Surely it's a fundamental human right It's a as fundamental well. right. And it, but, but also, if you, if you want to have a peaceful household, um, you want a place in which people are, are, have, have taken regular exercise because otherwise uh, frustrations begin to boil over. And that's certainly what we've seen in the youth estate. Um, there are some improvements, so that's good. And, and I think it's worth saying something about Park YOI because... Uh, elsewhere, education was shut down for months on end. At Park YOI, they shut down education just for a couple of weeks or so while they worked out what on earth was going on with the pandemic. The governor at Park didn't deploy staff from the youth part of the jail into other parts of the prison, despite the fact they were getting hit very hard by COVID. She was determined to maintain the staffing level within the youth part of the jail. Uh, They maintained education and they got people out of their cells. They kept them busy. And they actually took advantage of the fact that their numbers went down a bit over COVID to begin to retrain staff, to begin to reboot the way that the, that, that the centre was operating. And as a result of it, we saw a far more impressive uh, performance from that particular YOI than we did in the other two that we inspected. What do you think that was about? Is it a private prison? It is. So for those who are listening who might not understand the difference between the public and the private prison estate, that means they have... a budget controlled by a private company, right? That's right. Instead of the Ministry of Justice. So yeah. I know a lot of prison staff argue about this and can I go, well, of course they're doing better because they've got more money. Is it as simple as that? I don't think it is. And I mean, I think as, as an inspector, we've always been very careful not to get drawn into which is better, private or public. We simply we simply say uh, what we see. And, and bear in mind that G4S were running Park and Park YOI and doing a great job there. But actually we gave an urgent notification for, for Oak Hill Secure Training Centre um, which is just near Milton Keynes, which is also run by G4S. So we see good practice in, in private sector, just as we see good practice in, in the public sector as well. But I think there was perhaps something about the private sector which meant they were able to be more flexible in their response to, to COVID for, for that particular group of children. So that, that I would say that there may have been a difference. But I'd say probably more importantly, the difference was the fact that the education provider 
was also being run by the same provider who was running the prison. And what that meant is that the governor and, and the head of the unit uh, had oversight over, over that provision as well and therefore had control over what was going on and made sure that education continued throughout the pandemic, whilst elsewhere, because it was outside the governor's gift and because it was a contract let centrally by the uh, prison service, th- that, that um, there didn't seem to be much control on, on being able to get education, teachers, providers, services back into prisons nearly as quickly. Okay. And I imagine it has um, something to do with leadership. You've got a chapter in your report about leadership. How much do you think it is down to the person at the top? You know, obviously from schools, you sort of, mm. as, as a prospective parent, you'd come in and you'd meet the head. And if you weren't impressed with the headmaster sure. or headmistress, you might be like, well, actually, I'm, you know, that's where I make my judgments. How much do you think is down to the governors to set the tone, the culture and what happens? They are they are absolutely critical. And, and we, we go to prisons who do a really remarkable job in difficult circumstances. And actually, in that report, we've alluded to some prisons where, where despite the fact that it's a hard prison to run, I, I mean, I'll give you a case in point of, of Wandsworth, actually, which where, where even though our report was very critical, actually what we felt was the work of that really impressive governor was helping to keep the show on the road. I mean, Wandsworth is a really tough prison to run. It, it's squished into a very small footprint uh, the, the quality of accommodation is really poor. They, they struggle with recruiting enough officers, but good leadership in that jail was at least helping to keep things afloat, even though we were critical of, of the prison. But we also see leadership elsewhere where standards are not kept, where prisons become untidy, unkempt, where uh, the, the support for officers isn't in place, where there isn't a really clear lead set from the centre. So leadership to me is, is one of the fundamental things that makes the most difference in whether a prison can be successful or not. And, and, and whether the buildings, whether it's beautifully housed in a brand new building or whether it's an old crumbly building like Wandsworth or Warmbush Scrubs, leadership is still fundamentally important. Which leads me on to sort of one of my absolute bugbears. And I remember talking to Peter Clark about this, your predecessor, and the accountability because so often you see bad leadership, things going on that, quite frankly, shouldn't be going on, whether it's urgent notifications, uh, bad inspection reports. And they go, thank you very much. Yes, let's just put that sort of report under the desk and we'll ignore him for a bit and, you know, uh, we'll bide our time. Because so often there's no accountability. Indeed. And it was, it was the reason why uh, 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 my terrific predecessor, Peter Clark, fought for the introduction of urgent notification because he felt they were th- th- that the inspectorate was going to prisons where uh, there were some pretty catastrophic things going wrong. And actually, he needed to be able to press a red alarm button on the Secretary of State's desk to say, you need to do something and you need to do something urgently. And, and uh, since I've been in post, we, we've invoked them at Oak Hill, uh, at Rainsbrook, and also at HMP Chelmsford as well. But in the past, there have been them at, at uh, places like Bedford and uh, Bristol as well. So um, it is a real frustration. I think the frustration also is, is, is that sometimes the turnover of leaders it seems to be so quick, particularly in some of those hard-to-run prisons, that actually when we come to a prison again, and it's what happened with, um, with Chelmsford, is that the last time we visited it w- with Peter and the team, he, he said, look, we'll give you a pass. You've got a new governor in place. We think you, know, you, you might be able to make a bit of progress. We went back. That governor had gone. There was a new governor in place uh, we were told there's a new governor. We're going to make some progress. Don't worry. And we thought, actually, no. We've we've heard that we're once bitten on this particular jail. We've heard that story before, so we're going to invoke the the urgent notification. But I was in Wandsworth recently. I was also in Manchester Jail recently. Both jails have had ten governors this century, and that's not taking into account temporary governors in post as well. Those are two tough jails to run. The idea that you're really going to turn around or make progress with a jail with a tenure of not much more than two years for each governor is really fanciful to change the culture of those sorts of jails to really get a grip. And you see this in education, the world I come from, where, where if you had a school with a turnover of head teachers at that kind of pace, you would immediately be really worried about it. And I know our colleagues at Ofsted would be worried about that as well. What's going wrong, you'd be asking? Absolutely. Same in any private company. You can't have chief executives going through the door. I mean, yeah. you know, it just wouldn't happen. Yeah. In any other world, I don't think. It just wouldn't be tolerated. And that's what irritates me because it's tolerated here because it's a sort of Mm. hidden world that people, I feel, sometimes um, forget about. 
Moving on to the women, you've got a chapter also on women in prison mm. who, of course, um, so have sort of different needs to the men as they do to the children, of course. Um, I noticed that you have reported that the self-harm rates in some places were seven times higher mm. than the men. Was that... I know there's been a sort of year-on-year year increase, really, um, in the self-harm in women. Um, but did that go up exponentially because of COVID? It's interesting. We we looked at the when we looked at the self-harm rates in, in men's prisons, they actually began to fall during particularly the early part of COVID. And we think what might have been going on there was some very vulnerable prisoners who might have been uh, intimidated, exposed to violence by the sort of chaotic unlocks that we were seeing before actually felt safer in their cells, which is a terrible indictment. The idea you feel safer in your cell when you're locked up for 23 hours a day is pretty depressing. Uh, in women's prisons, what we saw is initially um, self-harm didn't go up enormously, but as soon as restrictions began to be lifted in the community, we saw self-harm begin to go up. So in that initial time where people were very anxious and, and people understood the reasons for lockdowns, um, there, there was only a slight variation but over time, we saw it begin to go up. And, and it does vary between different jails. And of course, we know that some women are particularly prolific self-harmers. But, but our inspection of Foston Hall saw incredibly high levels of self-harm. And interestingly, very high levels of violence for a women's prison as well, which are normally much safer. And that's why we gave our, our lowest score a one for safety, which we've never done before for a women's prison. And is it on an upward trajectory we, we now, will, or is we'll, it too? We'll, early we'll be to returning. Say? We'll be returning at some stage in the future, so we we'll see how that goes there. But um, certainly, we would want to see some pretty fundamental changes at that jail. The other two big issues that um, we talk about a lot at one small thing mm. because we lean into this area quite heavily. There's so much work to do. Um, community provision for women, so women who don't necessarily need to be in prison. Mm. They, it would be far better for everybody and their dependent children if they were able to access um, a community sentence that was safe and appropriate for them, which is so often not the case anymore. So community provision. And the other one is accommodation on release. Yeah. I think it's over 60% of women now leave prison without a home to go to. Um, I was giving a speech last night uh, talking about how um, it does happen that mm. women get given tents uh on release from prison and honestly the room there was just yeah. sh shock horror yeah. gasps because it sounds really unbelievable yeah i'll give you a couple of examples uh, at style quite a lot of women prisoners at style when they're released they don't bother to take their property with them they ask the prison to look after it because they know they're going to be back soon but that's the first thing the second was was a woman also at that prison who who said the last time she got released she got the prison to call her a taxi and the, from the, and the taxi took her to the red light district in Manchester where she went back uh, into prostitution as soon as she came out because that was the only way she was going to be able to fund her habit. So, so what we're seeing and what, and what you, know, you of all people will be familiar with is that, that triangle of mental health problems, of substance misuse and of homelessness and the way that's compounded by people coming in and out of prison over long periods of time. We've even seen examples of, of women who just don't want to leave prison because at least, uh, it, it, at least there's a roof over their head, at least they feel reasonably secure, at least there's some predictability about what the next day will, will be for them. And I think that's a real worry. The idea that prison is a better place to be than on the outside is something that we should all be worried about. So um, I used to, in my early 20s, I worked in style prison and I remember the governor saying I could take the walls down, most of the women wouldn't leave. Yeah. They are safer in here yeah. than they are outside. And I think this is the aspect that can be really misunderstood when talking about the gender-specific nature of violence and crime and imprisonment. And it's not about treating women preferentially, which I've advised the government for a few years on various different things. And sometimes it would be crept in that, you know, certain people would think that we were trying to say women need to be treated preferentially, which is, is not the case. But to understand that women feel like life is so unsafe outside the walls because often there's a, a male pimp or an abusive partner yeah. waiting. Yeah. When a man leaves prison, you don't usually have a female pimp or a female abusive partner waiting. You know, there's some real fundamental differences there, I think. 
Yeah, there are. It's also alluded to in the report about the lack of data across quite a number of different issues. And again, it makes me wonder how policies can be drawn up and how legislation is made if we are basing that on bad or no data. Yes, I mean, we, we I, I, you know, coming from an education world, it sort of, prisons remind me a bit of, of how schools were sort of 20 years ago or so, where lots of data gets collected and there are piles of, you know, if you know where to look, there are piles of data around. But actually prisons, uh, they're not in the habit of using it. They're not in the habit of using it effectively. So there's a few governors who are really good at data and they really like data and they're really enthusiastic and they can show an issue, they can show what they're doing about it and they can show the progress they've made and they've got really good measurements in place. But we go to lots of other places where, and I'll just give you one example. We went to a prison where... Uh, the, the prison in itself assessment told us how pleased they were that levels of the, the violence had dropped in the jail. And they were right, violence had fallen in the jail, but actually the prison's role had fallen by far more. So actually the rel- relative rate of violence in that prison had gone up. The staff in that prison thought it was safer. It was actually less safe than it had been at the beginning of the pandemic. But right. because people were not data literate, because they were not used to using data, they began to read the wrong things from it. So look, data isn't everything. Um, because actually you need to be there, you need to walk around, and we see the good leaders who do that, walk around the prison, prisoners know who they are. You need to go in there, you need to sniff the air, you need to taste the food, you, you need to walk the wings. But data helps to show you whether what you're doing is actually working and it's effective and making a difference. And, and there are lots of ways of gathering and collecting data, but very often it's used in a very piecemeal way, and, and, and it's a missed opportunity. Absolutely. But you've got data at the local level and the institutional level and then data at the central level, haven't Indeed. you, in the sort of Ministry of Justice, yeah. where the policies are drawn up and where the sort of legislature, when it heads into the House, um, when laws are being drawn up. And mm. it always terrifies me that um, that is being done on bad data or yeah. no data. Yeah, uh, often. I mean, I think it's interesting with, with prisons because... We think with our hearts a lot with prisons because of the effect of crime and because we're all, to some extent, frightened of crime and because we read a story in the paper and we're really shocked by what's happened and we can feel very angry. And you, know, you talk to people who've been victims of crime and, and how much that can completely transform their lives, um, absolutely and fundamentally. And, and so as a result of it, th- th- there's always a temptation when thinking about prisons and prisoners to act with the heart but ultimately, if we want prisons to be effective, if we want people to come out from prison and be successful, not to reoffend when they come out, then we also have to act with the head as well. And, and, and acting with the head means taking account of hard data, using what works, understanding what works, and then making sure that, that we're really pushing through with it. First of all, how long is your term? Is it three years or five? It's a three-year term. So how much longer do you have left in post? Uh, I'll have done two years in November this year. Okay, so you're coming into your sort of last year. Most chief inspectors, I think, have had their term increased, and I, know and I would Peter kept trying to retire. Yeah, I would, and I would love, <laughs> to, I would love to. Ca- I mean, I think I, I, I absolutely love this job, and I feel incre- incredibly privileged to be able to do it, and I would love to carry on doing it. But ultimately, that's in the in that that will be the decision of ministers. It won't be my decision. Absolutely. What What is your hope what would you like to achieve because we've talked about the fact that, and I talked to Peter about this. You know, is there enough teeth? in this organisation to affect real change? How do you really stop prisons from ignoring your reports, to be blunt? Um, how much power do you wield over government? Well, it sounds like none because you have to be independent. So, mm. you know, I'm always interested in impact and action, but I sort of feel myself flailing around going, what is it that you and your your team can really do to try and make sure that we're not talking about this and talking about the same things over and over again for the next 40 to 80 years. Uh, indeed. And, and, I, and I think if, if you look back, one of the most important things I think about Peter's legacy was uh, his, his, his unrelenting focus on the levels of violence that, that were rising within prisons and how actually basic standards of decency weren't being kept to, partly because violence was getting so high. And I think his introduction of the urgent notification process and the fact that he was able very bluntly to draw attention to some really appalling failings in the system did make an enormous difference. I think from, from, from my time as chief inspector, violence is still a huge issue in prisons. Violence is still far too high. There are still far too many drugs getting into prisons. But I think for my legacy, what I would like to see is that 
prisons open up, that we begin to really focus on a purposeful regime. We really think about what that means and that we end up giving prisons, prisoners what they need when they're in prisons rather than simply imposing a regime that, that, that suits the people running the prison. And I think too often we see that. But also, if, if, if I could help to raise the status and the importance of a focus on leadership, uh, then I would also be pleased with, 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 with my tenure. But not just at governor level, also at some of the middle ranking levels within prisons. So the custody manager is a critical role in prisons. And you come across people, for example, in, in our report, there was a brilliant uh, custody manager at Swinfern Hall, um, uh, just outside in the West Midlands. Uh, she was incredibly organised. She was incredibly efficient. She didn't take any nonsense from what was quite a challenging group of young men in that jail. That she rang a beautiful wing. It looked really clean. It was tidy. Everybody knew what the rules were, what they were supposed to do. But it was always, a, but it was also a really caring and supportive environment. So really good middle leadership makes an enormous difference. And uh, and I think the prison service could do well by thinking about that cadre of prison officers, those senior prison officers, those custody managers, and really focusing in on improving them, giving them the support they need in order to, 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 to get the job done. Because ultimately, you can't run a prison from a governor's office. And it's the people on the wing who are going to translate your vision, uh, your aspirations, your priorities into practice down on the wing. And it's only there that you'll really spot the difference. And it's sort of professional development, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, my organisation, we train sort of prison officers, but so often they can't get the time off the wing to go and access the training. Yeah. Um, that's a real problem. And certainly that's becoming more of a problem whilst there's a staffing crisis. So it's this sort of perpetual sort of uh, difficulty in all of that, isn't it? And of course, mm-hmm. if there's no money, if there's no investment, none of that's going to happen. So how do you make the case to ministers and ultimately to the Treasury to say, look, this isn't about winning votes X, Y and Z. This is about fundamentally doing the right thing because this is a public service that the public pays for. Yeah, This has to be done. This is a sort of non-negotiable. This is justice. This is one of the bedrocks of our Absolutely. country. Absolutely. If you look at the difference that good leaders make, it shows it's worth investing. And these custody managers, these are the governors of the future. These are people who are going to be running our prisons in 10 or 15 years' time and, and giving them the support they need, making sure that they want to stay in the profession, making sure that you give them an interesting and exciting career, that, that they get really good, high-quality training, particularly from their peers, from other people who are doing it well, who understand the way to run prisons effectively. If we can do that, then uh, we'll begin to make a difference. Um, we were at a prison last week where one of my inspectors turned around to me and he said, if every wing in every prison in England and Wales had a custody manager as good as the one in that wing there, many of the problems that we have across the prison estate wouldn't exist anymore. Yeah. That's, that's an example of how leadership can make a difference. Well, we've barely scratched the surface of what is quite a big report, which is out now. I would advise anyone listening, I presume if you are listening, you're interested in justice in some way. But even if you just read the introduction, it makes for... I mean, I have to say, sort of slightly depressing reading, even though it is punctuated with a few bits of positive news. Um, We haven't had time to cover immigration, court custody Mm. and all the other elements that you're involved in. But I, I would highly recommend a read of the report if you are interested in this space. So, Charlie, thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Edwina. It's been a pleasure. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below if you enjoyed listening we would love it if you would subscribe also rate review and best of all share this episode justice is produced for one small thing by the london podcast company if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.